Last week we tried to set forth the big picture of where we want to go as a church in terms of our ministry. And we tried to, to say that it's not as if we weren't doing these things before, but rather we were trying to crystallize and to refocus and in some ways streamline what we're doing uh, to maximize what we believe are the implications of some foundational beliefs about who God is, how he brings about change in people, and how he desires to advance the kingdom of Christ in this world. And uh, if you were not here last week but want to know what that's all about, then in a, hopefully by the end of the week you can get... Uh, last week's sermon online, but also that we distributed a card last week that summarized uh, what we were all about and uh, where, uh, where we thought the implications of that should be. And we still have some of those left, and we encourage you to take that, to read it, to think about it, and specifically to turn the card over and ask yourself repeatedly the questions on the back that, that are uh, more or less kind of uh, self-accountability questions that, that keep pulling us back. Okay, yeah, you may believe what's on the front of that card, but are you actually doing it? Uh, are you actually living that way? And perhaps you're here last week and, and you realize I lost my card. Uh, we'll give you another one as well. Now, beginning this week, what we want to do is take that big picture that we presented and unpack it in more detail and with more specific application for our lives. And so we want to begin where we began last week, and that is with God and his agenda for the world, specifically how that plan is focused on the Lord Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel that speaks to his work. And in order to look at this, we want to look at Acts 13 and think through Paul's sermon at Antioch. It's the first sermon we actually have recorded from him in the book of Acts. And it's important because here he lays out in summary form all of God's work to bring salvation to humanity. And he makes it clear that everything God has been doing, everything he's going to do, culminates in the coming of Christ and the proclamation of his kingdom. Everything was leading up to Christ, and now that he has come, everything is focused on him and his saving work. Therefore, we said, because God's agenda for the world is making known the gospel of Christ, our agenda should be making known the gospel of Christ to one another and to the world. For some of you, that will be an encouragement for things you already know. For some of you, that will be new, and this morning will be a good uh, level of foundational truth upon which you can build your life for Christ. And for others of you, frankly, you may not even know who Christ is or what Christianity is all about. And this morning, you will see what it is all about uh, that is the saving work of Christ. So I encourage you to follow along now as we turn to our passage in Acts 13. And I will begin reading at verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm he led them out of it. And for about forty years he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. 
And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me is one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. So also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he has raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he also says in another psalm, You will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that, though this, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. And they went out. The people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with him, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles." For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of God. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Well, Paul and Barnabas are on their missionary journey, advancing the gospel of Christ. And as they arrive in Antioch, they do what they normally do. They go to the synagogue first. Now, what was the synagogue? The synagogue uh, was uh, a gathering place for devout Jews to gather together, to pray, to hear the word taught and read when they were not gathering together at the temple for formal ceremonies of worship as prescribed for them in the law. Typically, they met on the Sabbath day. Now, why is Paul going there? Because he believed that all of the dealings that God had with his people Israel had come to fulfillment in Christ. That he was the Jewish Messiah. Therefore, the Jewish people needed to be told of Christ and what he had done. 
Paul wants to open the scriptures up for them and show them that this is true so that they will in fact embrace Christ as their Savior even as he himself has. Now as we think about this text and, and, and what uh, it tells us about God and his work, we see a couple of things. First we see this. God's plans and promises are fulfilled in Christ. God's plans and promises are fulfilled in Christ. Paul begins his message of kind of a summary of what God is doing through Israel up to Christ with the very foundation of the nation of Israel. He says in verse 17, The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm he lifted them out. Now when you go back and you read the Old Testament, what you find is that in some ways the nation of Israel is like any other nation. Um, in fact, God specifically tells them, uh, there was nothing special about you. There was nothing pleasing to the eye when I looked at you. Nevertheless, what did he do? He chose them above all the other nations to be his people. God chose Israel to be his people, and then he provided them with a special land in which to dwell and live as his people. And so Paul begins in the same place the Bible does. God taking the initiative to provide grace and salvation to an undeserving people. If we know God today, it is because he has taken the initiative. Even we saw at the end of the passage, all who were appointed to eternal life believed. God was taking the initiative through the preaching of Paul. And when you read Exodus, it's even more clear. Because it says that the Israelites are crying out from bondage in Egypt. But it never says they're crying out to God. It never says they're crying out to the Lord. In fact, when Moses goes out, he's given the task to come back and, and tell Israel uh, that the Lord is coming and is going to save them. He says, well, well, which God are you? Who should I say sent me? In other words, Moses himself knows the people of Israel are not saying, well, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is our God. They don't know Yahweh. So Yahweh has to reintroduce himself to his people Israel. God goes after them and calls them to be his people, showing them mercy, rescuing them from the Pharaoh. Why? Because he made promises to their father Abraham. It wasn't, it wasn't just for no reason. It wasn't like he just rolled the dice and Israel popped. It was, okay, they're going to be my people. No, he kept his promises to Abraham that he would have a son, and from that son would come a great nation, Israel, that he would bless them and give them a land in which to dwell. He kept those promises through the people of Israel even when they didn't deserve it. We we're told in verses 18 through 19, for about 40 years, God put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. Now Paul goes on and on and on through the history of Israel. What is he doing? He is reminding them of the grace of God towards them as a people. Despite even their rebellion and sinfulness for the first 40 years of the relationship, if, if, if God is the husband and Israel is the wife for the first 40 years, she didn't love her husband. She didn't like him. She complained about everything he did, and yet he continued to love her. That's what it was like. He still showed them grace and gave them the promised land. Despite their turning away from God as king, doing what was right in their own eyes, God gave them the prophet Samuel and a king who loved God, David. Through their history, God was incredibly patient with his people, always displaying mercy despite their sin. And in all of these things, Paul is giving what is essentially an overview of Old Testament history. It's the kind of stuff these people would have learned growing up because it was essential knowledge to their identity as God's covenant people. 
I mean, this is the stuff that they would have learned in Sabbath school. You know what I'm saying? Uh, for, for the little kids. And so, I mean, this is, this is what it meant to be a Jew. It's not without reason that, that Paul had the name Saul. The first king of Israel was an important mile marker for them. But Paul turns the corner all of a sudden. Paul turns the corner and suddenly he's talking about Jesus and this man, John the Baptist, who, whose preaching had literally divided the nation of Israel. Was he sent from God or not? If he was, what was he supposed to do? But Paul drills down further. He goes further and he says, yeah, this man was a prophet. And more than that, he pointed out to you the Messiah. He looked at Jesus and said, this is the Christ who is going to save us. Paul's essentially saying, look, I know it's shocking, I know it's unexpected, but this is what our own scriptures have led us to believe about Jesus. He is the Messiah. Moses said God is going to send another prophet like himself, and that's him. David was promised a son whose kingdom would last forever. This is him. The prophet Isaiah saw a servant who would suffer for the sins of the people. That's what he did. This wasn't some new religion. This wasn't some new idea Paul had. This was God's plan from the beginning. That is what Paul is trying to show them. Paul's not trying to show them, look, you know, you know, I was off and had a great time with some friends, and we were just talking philosophy and theology, and I thought, you know, what if this guy Jesus was God in the flesh, the Messiah, fulfilling of the promises? No, 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 no. He said, go back and look with eyes that can see. This is what everything has been leading up to, the coming of this man, Jesus. So he says in verse 32, we bring you the good news that what God promised the fathers, he is now fulfilled in Christ. What God promised, he has brought about. He kept his promises. Now, I know, historically, we, we, are, we are not used to people keeping promises in this country. You may or may not know that in October 1940, presidential candidate Franklin Roosevelt promised, I have said this before, but I will say it again and again, your boys are not going to be sent into any foreign wars. October 1964, candidate Lyndon Johnson promised, quote, We are not about to send American boys nine or 10,000 miles away from home to do what Asian boys ought to be doing for themselves. Over 10 years later, the last American boy came back from that Asian country. No new taxes. Read my lips. I mean, we sense in a pattern here. People make promises they are either unwilling or unable to keep. And we just expect that. Even now in our current political cycle, we, we hear people making all kinds of promises, and frankly, we're like, eh, whatever. You know, I'll believe it when I see it, is basically the attitude. But it's not just important people. It's not just famous people. It's people like us, too, isn't it? How many times have we made promises to people and we have failed utterly to keep them? Maybe it's even something small. Maybe it's been something big. Maybe we've, we've had good intentions, but we've been unable to do it. Friends, it's not God. When he makes a promise, he is not only going to keep his promise because that is the kind of God he is. That's who his character is, faithful to his word. But more than that, he is powerful enough to do it. He is always able to keep his promises. Over thousands of years, in the most amazing, unexpected, miraculous way, God kept his promises and he kept all of them in the sending of his son, Jesus. Now, what does all that mean practically for us? What does that mean for the world? It means that now we have a Savior. One who can deliver us from the consequences we deserve from our sin, because of our sin, and bring us to God. And that leads us to the second thing that we need to see this morning, and that's this. God's saving grace is displayed in Christ. 
God's saving grace is displayed in Christ. Paul sums up the totality of Christ's life in two events, his death and his resurrection. Look at verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and among, among the, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them, that is, those utterances of the prophets, by condemning Jesus. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Now, the center of Jewish life was Jerusalem. I mean, that, that is where it was all taking place. But notice, those who were supposed to be at the center of Jewish life, those that were supposed to be the religious leaders of Israel, they couldn't see the reality in front of their eyes. That the salvation promised by God had come in Jesus. And yet... And yet, even though they could not see what was in front of their eyes, even though they didn't even understand the prophecies about what was taking place, they themselves were part of the fulfillment of them. And now Paul hints at how that salvation was accomplished. He says that Christ was executed on a tree from which he was then taken down. Now that's a funny way about talking about a cross, isn't it? Now on a simple level, uh, you know, he's just exchanging one word for the other. I mean, a cross is not made out of metal, it's not made out of concrete, it's made out of wood. They didn't have particle board back then. They literally cut up a tree, right? So in a real sense, Jesus hung on a tree. But, but Paul is making a theological point. In the Old Testament, we're told, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him on the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. Paul wants his listeners to know that in his death, Jesus became cursed by God, not because of anything he did, but because of the sins of his people. Though perfect in every way, Jesus bore the curse of our sin by his death on the cross, not just symbolically, but really and spiritually. Jesus died under the wrath of God in our place for our sins. And so Paul makes this explicit in one of his later letters, in Galatians chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Sinners can be freed from their sin and made right with God because Christ was condemned in their place. But Paul goes on. Jesus was executed. He was laid in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. That is, Jesus appeared to his apostles who followed him all of his life, all into Jerusalem and his death. And now they are the ones carrying this message of salvation to the world. God not only vindicated the innocence of Christ, but also completed the redemption won for sinners by raising him back up from the dead. For not only is Jesus' death our death, but his resurrection is also the promise of our future resurrection. And again, what does Paul say? All this is in fulfillment of God's promises. What was promised the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. And he quotes from Psalm 16. Now, we read Psalm 16 several weeks ago, and if you read that, you're, you're thinking David's talking about himself. But Paul says in an even greater way, he is pointing forward to, to his greater son, Jesus. He was the one who did not see corruption. David saw corruption. I mean, David was worm food thousands of years ago. You under, I mean, you, we, we, well, yeah, I mean, you understand that, right? I mean, it's just gone. Okay, uh, depending on your on your understanding of recycling and everything, you might have breathed, David. Okay, I mean, I mean, he's just long gone. But because Jesus, David's greater son Jesus did not see corruption, 
and came out of the grave on the third day. So David one day will no longer see corruption, but will come out of the grave just like you and I. In the end, Paul says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that though this man, through this man Jesus forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Be, beware, therefore, lest what is said of the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, and be astounded and perish, for I am, a do, I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Paul says the law could never give Israel freedom from sin and its consequences, but Christ can. Therefore, he says, don't be scoffers. Don't mock what seems odd and unexpected. What you have longed for has become reality in Jesus Christ. Look to him and believe that he is the promised Savior, and you will receive forgiveness of sins from God. This last thing, forgiveness of sins, is the central problem that every religion in the world is trying to address. Every single one. They may not call it sin. They may call it, you know, negative emotion, like Scientology. Or they might call it uh, karmic debt, like in Hinduism. But ultimately, what we're trying to accomplish through religion is answering the question, how is one made right with God or the universe or one another? Why? Because implicitly we know people are bad. People aren't good. They don't do good things. They do very, very wicked things. We don't treat each other like we should. Even the people that we love, we're mean and violent to. If nothing else, then verbally, if not physically. People are wicked. And so every religious belief is an attempt to figure out how do we fix that problem. So, for example, every 12 years there is a religious festival in the holy city of Allahabad near the Ganges River in India. A few years ago, there were over 4 million people who attended the festival. They came from all over. There were some peasants who had their mats rolled up under their arm, and they walked there. There were others from Western countries who flew in on their private jets to attend. Now, why in the world was this sea of humanity lined up waiting to bathe in the freezing cold water of the Ganges that time of year? It's because they believed that during this holy festival, the water of the Himalayas would wash away their sins. That's why they were there. It would purge them of their past bad karma and free them from the endless cycle of reincarnation which seeks to purge it. In an instant, all of what they had done in the past would be gone and forgiven by the universe. The problem is, with so many other things, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. You might get a good bath that day, but water cannot cleanse the soul. And what Paul is saying here is that every attempt to gain forgiveness apart from Jesus Christ is worthless. It is futile and will leave you in your sins. This wasn't far from the error of the Jews as well. They knew they were Israelites by grace, but many failed to see that keeping the law wouldn't save them. They were still sinners in need of forgiveness, and that forgiveness was provided to them through the coming of their Messiah the one that God sent in fulfillment to his promises. It is possible for us to find real and actual forgiveness in Christ because in him our sins are forgiven and God is seen as both loving and holy. The great joy for us in all of this is that this message of the gospel, this good news of God's saving work, isn't just for Jews. Otherwise, a lot of us would be in big, big trouble, right? 
Notice how he begins the sermon. Men of Israel and you who fear God. He uses that phrase a couple of times. You who fear. Who is he talking about? Is he talking about Jews who fear God? No, no, no. It's two different kinds of people. He's talking about the people of Israel and those who were God-fearers, those who fear God. It's a technical term for Gentiles who became exposed to the religion of Judaism, saw there was truth there, and began to worship along with the Jews. Some were, were true converts, true proselytes, men who allow themselves to be circumcised and therefore grafted in as full children of the covenant. Others were just men who feared God, those Gentiles who had not yet fully converted, who had not been circumcised and yet lived like Jews. They kept the food laws. They attended the temple. They paid for the sacrifices. In all of this, Paul is pointing forward to the reality that the Gentiles are part of the plan and promises of God. In fact, the next week when they, when they showed the teach more, some of the Jews are angry with him. And they said, we don't want to hear this. This can't be right. This isn't wrong. They said, look, it's on you, not us. It's not going to bother us that you reject our message because we already know we have a calling to be a light to the Gentiles in fulfillment of the prophecies that Isaiah gave. We're going on. And what does it say? They rejoiced. They were glad. They said, well, you mean Jesus didn't just come for his people, the Jews? He came for everybody? This is amazing. And they rejoiced. And as many as that were appointed to eternal life believed, Luke says. Christ is the universal Messiah. There is no person or people that he cannot save. There is no salvation for any people or person outside of him. If you are going to be right with God, then it will be through Jesus. So that's what we see. Salvation coming through Christ, the promises of God fulfilled in Christ. Now, practically, what difference does that make to our life? This afternoon, tomorrow, three Thursdays from now, what should you be doing differently with how you live because of that? This is the last thing that we see. God's people are to live and serve with a focus on Christ. God's people are to live and serve with a focus on Christ. Four things. If the focus of everything God has done and is doing is the gospel of Christ, then we need to know the gospel. We need to know the gospel. If someone asked you what the gospel was, what would you say? Could you explain what the gospel of Christ is? Could you do it in less than a minute? More than that, picking up on what we had talked about this morning, if you were here for Bible study, when you read the Bible, do you read it in light of the gospel of Christ? Do you know it well enough to see it as, as a pair of glasses by which you read the rest of Scripture? Can you read the Old Testament like Paul read it, like Jesus quoted it? Can you read Nehemiah and understand the differences the gospel of Jesus makes and how you apply it? What about Leviticus or the Song of Solomon or Ezekiel? You might think, well, that's just something for Bible scholars and try to excuse yourself. But hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. Isn't the whole Bible about Christ? If it is, if that's true, then it's not just left to Bible scholars to figure out how to do this. It is the responsibility of every Christian to understand how to do this. Paul preached the gospel from the Old Testament. I mean, the New Testament was being written as he spoke. We realize that, right? And yet he, he was so gripped by the gospel, he understood it so well, that he was able to see how, how all of the Old Testament, it was woven in in terms of what was predicted and what was going to come. You say, well, you know, okay, okay, I want to be there, but I'm not. That's fine. That's fine. You realize how many resources there are now? that show you how to read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus compared to even 10 years ago? I mean, you guys are living in a great day. Articles, audio talks, video series, books after book after book. But you know what's even better? Rather than spending all that money if you don't have it, just sit down with the New Testament 
And every time they quote the Old Testament, stop and ask, how are they quoting? How are they reading? How is Matthew applying this to Jesus? How is Paul applying this to Jesus? How are they reading the Old Testament? And just begin making some notes. And just by reading the New Testament that way, you will learn how to read the Old Testament with a Christ-centered focus. If you get really desperate, you just come see me and we'll sit down and we'll talk. Okay? Secondly, if the focus of everything God has done and is doing is the gospel of Christ, then we need to be speaking the gospel. We need to be speaking the gospel. This is why you have to know it. You can't just say, well, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, you've got Jesus and, you know, he's, he's, he's God and man and he dies and he comes back to life and, and we're going to believe. And then, uh, and then that brings us right with God and, and there's a curse thing and reconciliation and, and that's what Christianity is all about. You've got you to be better than that because it's meant to be spoken. And if there's, if there's haze in your mind, there will be fog in your words. And someone's going to walk away saying, what in the world was he talking about? I don't, I don't know. And, and, and that's not going to do you any good. It's not going to do them any good. The, the Bible, the gospel is meant to be spoken. It's, we're not just meant to be a bunch of theological eggheads around here. We don't just learn about the gospel for the sake of learning about it. We don't need to have, you know, uh, side corner discussions for hours about how many angels dance on the head of a pin and say, well, that's not a great discussion. Maybe it was. This is from a guy who loves to have theological talk, but, but, but it's supposed to evoke something in us. When, when, when we sit down and we read books about the doctrine of salvation, when we read passages of Scripture that, that are just screaming gospel, 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 we should not just walk away with our theology tighter, although we should. We should also walk, uh, walk away with our hearts exploding in praise and thanksgiving to God, which should want to come out both to one another in song, like we just sung, and to others in evangelism. We should be wanting to tell people the gospel, to remind one another of what the reality of the gospel is, whether that's edification for the saints or evangelism for the lost. We'll either be telling about the glory of God in Christ to unbelievers, helping them see their need and beauty of the provision of a Savior in Him, or we'll be telling it to one another, helping God's people become more and more captivated by the grace of Christ so that we will be able to not be so easily wooed by sin. Third, if the focus of everything God has done and is doing is the gospel of Christ, then we need to live for the gospel. We need to live for the gospel. This is related to what I just said about speaking the gospel. If we are going to be serious about speaking the gospel to one another in the world, then we need to be constantly reorienting our life toward that end. What do I mean? Think about this. When was the last time you went somewhere and plan to just hang out, to, to blow an evening, an afternoon, just where you knew lost people were going to be in the hopes you might get a chance to talk to them. You didn't say, well, this is a great restaurant, I always want to try it, maybe I'll bump into some lost people. No, no. You just say, I know lost people hang out here, so I'm going to go hang out there. When was the last time you packed a New Testament or a Bible or a good gospel tract in your coat pocket or in your purse or in your glove box with the intention of giving it to somebody or telling someone about Jesus that day? When was the last time you planned for, spent money on, or in, spent money on, or in some way inconvenienced yourself just so you could spend time with people who need to hear about God and His willingness to forgive sins? Or God's people who need to be encouraged again and again and again by the reality of salvation in Christ? Now, I don't say that necessarily to make you feel guilty, though if it comes and it's conviction by sin, good, repent and, and fix it. My point is, though, you don't just fall backwards into evangelism. You don't just go throughout your day and, and all of a sudden you're, you're, you're a bold proclaimer of the gospel of Christ. It won't happen. 
unless God rushes upon you in an amazing way and, and, uh, and he, takes, he takes over, it's not going to happen. If you've never shared the gospel for the first time, it will feel awkward and you will be nervous. You will have sweaty palms and you won't know what to say. And that's why it's great if you have a really good track and you just read what's on the pages and give that person your phone number and you go and say, God, I can't believe I made it through that. I hope they don't call me and they call the pastor instead. That's what it'll go like. I guarantee it. But the more and more you do it, the more it'll become easy and comfortable. But it all starts with a plan. And a reorientation of your life. You prepare, be prepared to spend time and money and resources or else it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Finally, if the focus of everything God has done and is doing is the gospel of Christ, then we need to live in light of the gospel. We need to live in light. What, what, what do I mean here? If we have heard and believed that Christ is our Savior who brings us to God, we should not only rejoice in our God-given forgiveness, but we should also pursue a life changed by our God-given forgiveness. That was the passage we heard this morning from Romans chapter 12. Be based on the mercies of God, live your life as a sacrifice to God. If your life is hid with Christ, then die to yourself and live with Him. And that is the whole theme of the New Testament ethic. You should be asking yourself, how does the gospel affect this area of my life? How should my life be different because I'm a Christian? How does the gospel affect how I raise my kids? How I deal with stress? How I love my spouse with my words in public? And how I make love to my spouse behind closed doors? How does the gospel affect that? And if you say, the gospel will affect those things, oh, yes, it does. How does the gospel affect the amount of time I spend in hobbies and recreation versus ministry? Where does my money go? How do I speak about politicians I don't like? The gospel is like a flashlight in a dark cavern illuminating all of the rats, rocks, and snakes we do not want to come in contact with as we are moving through it. And what we need to do is take that gospel flashlight and begin exposing every area of our life. So we can identify the sin that is there, call out to God for forgiveness, and ask for the grace to see it changed. Everything that we do, think, or say should be impacted by the gospel of Christ. I want to end this morning with an extended illustration. It's a testimony from Jonathan Lehman's excellent book, Reverberation. He has no idea who I am, but I know who he is. We were in a class at seminary together. And uh, it's a great book. I hope uh, you'll read it one day. But I want you to see how these things come together in real life. Don't miss this. Lehman writes this. My friend Brad helped me to do a little reprogramming of my own heart. Brad was a fellow member of a former church of mine, and we met weekly for a season. I remember one evening driving up to his house to pick him up for dinner, and he was waiting for me on the curb. I reached over, opened the car door from the inside, and heard him immediately say, Hey, Jonathan, have you ever seen a CD player this small? He had brought his own battery-powered player and was intending to play it, and it wasn't that small. Brad is autistic and blind. Like most people with autism, he's socially awkward and makes strange bodily movements. For instance, he will squeeze his eyes shut, flap his hands in front of his face that his fingertips touch, then repeatedly wipe his face with both hands. I turned my car radio off. Brad's finger hit the play button. We had not made much conversation at that point. We had not said hello. Still, it was time to sing. Not two more seconds passed, and the Atlanta Symphony Chorus began filling the small cabin of my car with Handel's Hallelujah Chorus, accompanied by Brad's sonorous vibrato. 
Brad may be blind and autistic, but he's also a member of the professional chorus and has a beautiful voice. Hallelujah, hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent. I began singing with him. My meager baritone was no match for his hearty tenor. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The cavern reverberated loudly with these words from the book of Revelation. I began thinking about the king of kings who had established his kingdom in Brad's heart. The song finished. Brad then asked me, do you know this one? He punched the track button and then we sang the following lines from Isaiah that Handel placed in part two of his Messiah. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. But Brad didn't let the song finish. He stopped the CD in order to discuss the lyrics with me. Yep, with his stripes we are healed. Do you know that, Jonathan? With his stripes we are healed. He was bruised for our iniquities, and with his stripes we are healed. He took the suffering we deserve. He paid for our sins. With his stripes we are healed. He talked this way for several minutes. Actually, he talked this way most of the evening. There was no pretense in his words. There was no fear in what I might think of him. He simply spoke gospel. Gospel words from gospel lips overflowing from a gospel heart. I wondered at several points if I was with a prophet. The clear ring of Brad's heart was a sermon to me. Make no mistake, Brad is lonely. He longs for more friends. He longs for a wife. He longs to see. He longs to be released from the ravages of a crumpled nervous system. Yet somehow more than any of those things, he longs for the day when he will be released from sin and the ravages of sin. That evening, in fact, it occurred to me that Brad's heart, Brad's heart rang like a gospel bell, ringing this one sustained note. You know what a bell sounds like. There's no complexity. There's no dissonance. There's no conflict in its ring. A bell sound is not boastful. It is not presumed to be an orchestra. A bell is single-minded and wills only one thing, to sing its one note clearly. By his stripes we are healed, Brad kept saying. He told me that his mom tries to get him to stop talking about the gospel so much, and I wasn't surprised. This evening wasn't unique. Brad often talks this way. He cannot help it. I consider my own mind and heart. Analytical, complex, fickle, double-minded, occasionally afraid. I wish the people closest to me got sick of me talking about the gospel so much. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, what an amazing testimony of a young man who struggles in ways that most of us will never understand. And yet is much closer to you than many of us might ever achieve. God, here is the example, the real life example of the pattern that we see in the New Testament of a truly gospel-centered life. Here's someone who's been so captivated by the gospel that it not only forms the things that he listens to on his CD player, but the things that he talks about with his friends, with his family, with those who do not even care to hear. He does so not with an axe to grind. He does so not with an agenda, anything other than to rejoice and share in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I stand condemned by that example and like the author it is my prayer that people would long to shut me up because I talk about the gospel too much 
Father, if the, if the gospel is your agenda, it needs to be our agenda. I pray that you would so weave it into the very fabric of our minds and our hearts that like bread, it would just spill out in all that we do and what we listen to and what we think about and what we say and the very way in which we live our life. God, this is my prayer this morning. I pray that you would answer it not for my sake, not for the sake of this church, but for the sake of your Son and the glory of his name. Amen.